We're taking a break today from our series through the Gospel of John. Uh, Christmas is upon us, and so we're instead going to look at possibly one of the most popular of all Christmas passages. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, and we're going to look, we're going to, look at verses 1 through 20. And so as we begin, I'm going to invite July Snell up. Um, July, why don't you come on up? I've asked July if she would begin our time by reading through Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20 in its entirety. The birth of Jesus Christ. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus to all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judah, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and in lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was the child, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will bring that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has known, has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known that saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all the, who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told. Pray together. Father, we thank you for Christmas. Lord, we ask that you be here with us today and you'd speak to our hearts, Lord. We've heard this story, we've heard this uh, passage of Scripture read so many times, uh, and we've celebrated this, this season, um, some of us, for, for many decades now. And God, I just pray that you'd protect us against just the uh, potential um, monotony of it. God, that we wouldn't lose the sight of what Christmas means and um, what it says about you, what it says about our hope. God, I just pray that you'd speak to us through your word today. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift. I pray, God, that you would illuminate the scriptures to each one of our minds and hearts today as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I've been doing some thinking this week. Uh, what is it... What is it that makes Christmas so unique out of all the holidays? What makes, what makes Christmas such a unique, special time? What makes it, even for those who are outside of the Christian faith, so enamored with Christmas? Why do we start listening to Christmas music basically after the 4th of July? Okay? What, what, what is it that sets Christmas apart? I have a theory. I think the message of Christmas 
has basically been written on each one of our hearts. I think it's, it's basically part of our DNA. I think the message of the gospel, which is the message of Christmas, has basically been written on each one of our hearts. We long for it. We, we know that we, we need it. We yearn for it. We fantasize about it. We dream about it. We talk about it. We celebrate it. Um, and and I'll, I'll prove that to you. Consider the stories and the fairy tales and the myths and the legends that have endured for the ages. Think about the greatest stories that are being told today. What, what, what draws us to big stories like, like Lord of the Rings? Most of us. I know. What, what, what draws us to big stories like Lord of the Rings and, and, and King Arthur and Cinderella? Why do those stories, why are they told over and over and over and over over the years? I'll tell you why. I, th- I think it's because there are significant traces of the gospel message built right into those stories. I think there are significant traces of the Christmas message built right into those stories, and we need it, and we long for it, and we dream about it. I'll give you a few examples. Take one that we all know and love to start with. Let's start with Star Wars. It's part of our membership class to, that you like Star Wars. You have to check it off the box. Just kidding. Take Star Wars. Okay, Obi-Wan Kenobi is dueling Darth Vader in the Death Star. Okay? The, this is the first Star Wars that released. This is Star Wars 4, right back in the 70s. Uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi is dueling with, with Darth Vader in the Death Star. And, and, and Darth Vader basically says, I'm, you know, you're getting old and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to defeat you. I'm going to kill you. Obi-Wan Kenobi says this. He says, if you strike me down, I'll become more powerful than you can ever imagine. And then to the, off to the side, Luke Skywalker is running over to the Millennium Falcon. And Obi-Wan still battling, catches him out of the corner of his eye, looks over, they make, make eye contact, and you can just see the love emanating from Obi-Wan for this, you know, young boy Luke. And what Obi-Wan does, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, is he basically lays down his lightsaber. He actually kind of holds it up here, and he takes the blow from Darth Vader. Why would he do that? How, how, how is it that he, he became so powerful? Do you know why he did it? It's so that his spirit could come alongside Luke and encourage him and guide him through the rest of the story into victory. Okay? He took the blow. He, he, he laid down his life so that his spirit could come alongside Luke Skywalker and lead him into victory. That's the gospel message. You might think I'm stretching that one a little bit. I'll give you a few more. <laughs> All right. What, what, about, what about the story of Peter Pan? What's Peter Pan about? Peter, Pan's, Peter Pan is about a magical land that we all want to go to where you'll never grow old. What, what about Sleeping Beauty? What does Sleeping Beauty tell us? Sleeping Beauty tells us that death is not the end. That one day a prince will come and will slay the dragon and will come and kiss us and wake us out of our sleep. That's what Sleeping Beauty is about. What about the Lion King? Lion King is about, is about a, 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 you know, it, it proves that, that when the rightful king is sitting on the throne that everything lives in harmony. But when the evil one comes and takes the throne, everything moves into darkness, desolation, and despair. But don't worry because one day, one day the son of the king is going to come back. And he's going to battle the evil, the evil one. And he's going to make things right. You know, it's interesting. If you've, ever, if you've seen that movie, the creators of that movie actually make the land. When Scar is sitting on the throne, they actually turn, the land is actually dark. Have you noticed that? The, the setting is actually dark, and, and, and it's desolate, and everyone's in despair. But, but, when, but when Simba comes, and he comes back, and he takes the throne, not only does he, does he defeat the evil one, but then the, the rain comes. And it washes away the desolation, and it, it puts out the fire, and then the, the light breaks through the dawn. Light breaks through the clouds. What does Beauty and the Beast tell us? When the beast, this ugly, mean beast, receives love, true love, 
He sheds his ugliness. He's transformed. He's beautiful. He's radiant. He has a new body. How many times has, has Beauty and the Beast been told and retold over the years? Why, why do we keep coming back to these same stories? I, th- I think it's because we are so moved by the idea that no matter how deep and profound and transforming and, and, and distorting our sin is, no matter how deeply our mistakes has, have disfigured us, it's possible that there is a love out there that can break the, cur- the curse and set us free. I'll just give you one or two more. I'll give you a couple more recent ones. One of my favorite kids' movies that come out recently is Tangled. Have you guys seen Tangled? Um, I'm just going to, I'm ruining all kinds of the ends of these movies for you, and I'm, I don't even <laughs> care. But if you haven't seen Tangled, it's great. It's the, it's the retelling of the story of Rapunzel. It's a, it's a, it's a fun movie. Uh, th- this is how the story ends. If you've, if you've seen it, you'll know. Flynn Rider, the, the hero of the story, Flynn Rider cuts off Rapunzel's hair. Okay, he cuts off her hair. Do you remember why he has to do it, though? When he cuts off her hair, he does it so that she would be set free from captivity and so that the evil one would be destroyed. The evil one would lose all power. But to cut off her, to cut off her hair, what that meant was that he was laying down his life. It meant that he had to die. He laid down his life so that she could be set free and the evil one would be destroyed. That's the story of the gospel. I'll get frozen. How do you melt a frozen heart? How do you melt a frozen heart? An act of true love, is what they say. How, how, how do you, actually, Anna, I've got, a, I've got a little girl, I've seen this dozens of times. <laughs> Anna, at some point, even tells Elsa, Elsa, you've set off an eternal winter. That's the phrase that she uses. You've set off an eternal winter. And, and the only way to be able to turn back the tide of this eternal winter was an act of true love. Do you remember what the act of true love was? Anna, the one who had been abused and rejected for years, went under the sword for the one who had abused and rejected her. She laid down her life for the one who had abused and rejected her, and that turned the tide on the eternal winter. That's the gospel message. And we could just keep going. It's hard, to, it's hard to, as a Christian uh, to, to watch, actually to watch these movies and not choke up, not be so moved by these because you just see it so entrenched within these stories. One, one, again, one of the stories I mentioned earlier with, with gospel traces actually all throughout it is, is the Lord of the Rings. And there was a review written years ago about the Lord of the Rings books. And this was written in the New Yorker. It was written by a guy named Anthony Lane. And, and he was talking about, you know, why have the, the, these books been so popular over the decades? When these were written, actually, if, if I'm not mistaken, uh, I think in the 20th century, these books were second to the Bible in sales, the Lord of the Rings books. And, he, and so he's reflecting on why were these books so popular? What is it? This is what he says. He says, it is a book that bristles with bravado. And yet, he says, to give into it, to cave into it, as so many of us did, shows a reluctance to face the finer shades of life. And that verges on the cowardly. Here's what he's saying. He's saying, this book bristles with bravado. You cave into it. You can't, you can't help it because here are the themes. Good triumphs over evil. Love conquers all. And, and who doesn't resonate with those kind of themes? We love those. He says, but real life's not like that. That's not real life. And to absorb yourself in those little fairy tales like Frozen and Tangled and Lord of the Rings is cowardly. He says, you have to face real life where the nice guys finish last, the dead stay dead, and there's no happily ever after. 
And he says, and, and to get absorbed in these things is nothing but, but cowardice. And honestly, he'd be right if it weren't for Christmas. Amen? He'd be right if it were not for Christmas. You see, the Christmas story is like so many of those other, you know, great stories that have stood the test of time. And there's so much like, you know, those other stories, great stories that are being told today, except Luke doesn't start his account with once upon a time. He says, when Caesar Augustus was emperor and Quirinius was the, was the governor of Syria, that's how he starts his Christmas account. Or take one of the other, the other gospel writers who, who, you know, wrote about Christmas, Matthew. Uh, does he start with, once upon a time there was a carpenter and a virgin? He says, no, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. He starts with his ancestry. It's history. This is real life. God has broken into our story. God taking on flesh, being born as a baby to a virgin and a poor carpenter laid in a manger, laid into a feeding trough, is not just another story like the rest pointing to some awesome and beautiful realities. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, being born as a baby, taking on flesh, being born in a feeding trough, is the awesome and beautiful reality to which all the other stories point. You follow me? The story of Christmas has been written on our hearts. That's why we long for it. That's why we need it. That's why we talk about it. That's why we fantasize about it. And it's of absolute importance that we recognize that what we're fantasizing over in so many stories has come as fact. And so when my little girl comes to me one day and says, Daddy, I wish there was a real prince. I wish there was a real prince who would come to me and kiss me and wake me out of my sleep. I wish there was a real prince who would come you know, and, and, and rescue me and make me a princess. I wish there was a real Superman who would come from another world with superpowers to fight evil. I wish there was, there was someone who would come to my window and, 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 and let me fly with them to a land where I'd never grow old. You know what I can tell her? Because of Christmas, I can say there is a real prince, sweetheart. There is a real Superman. There is a real knight in shining armor. There is a real prince, and his name is Jesus. That's what Christmas says. And it changes everything. I've told you guys here before that Larry King, Larry King was the, that great uh, interviewer who himself was once interviewed, and he was asked this. Very famously, they, they asked him, and if you could interview one person, past or present, who would it be and what would you ask him? And this is what he said. He said, I would interview Jesus of Nazareth, and I would ask him, were you truly virgin-born? Is the Christmas story true? Because what Larry King says, he says, because if that's true, that would define history for me. That would change everything. And he's right. So today... And uh, Wednesday on Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the message of Christmas. This reality that we have so longed for, this event that changes everything. And we're going to see what our response should be. In Luke chapter 1 and in Luke chapter 2, we get two declarations of the gospel. One to Mary and one to the shepherds. Today we're going to look at how the shepherds respond to the gospel. And on Wednesday we'll look at how Mary responds to the gospel. Look with me again at verse 8. And in that same region... There were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. When you hear that passage, what do you think of? Anybody think of Charlie Brown? Anyone? Linus? Okay, I, I think of Linus. I think of 
Christmas plays, Christmas pageants, I think of chestnuts roasting on an open fire and Jack Frost nipping at my nose. That's what I think of. This is a Christmas passage that we've heard for so many years at Christmas services and so on. It's a Christmas passage that packs in all kinds of warm, fuzzy feelings. But if you've ever taken a step back and actually looked at those verses, those are not soft, fuzzy verses. This is a passage about fear, about terror, actually. Here's what you have. You have shepherds sitting in the dark, probably the middle of the night, quiet, watching over their sheep. And then all of a sudden, the light of God, the very glory of God is shining around them. And there is a strong, mighty warrior angel standing in front of them. And they are utterly, absolutely terrified. Actually, Luke, this gospel writer, wants, to, wants us to understand just how terrified they are. And so in, in the typical kind of ancient language way that, that they did, they, would, they doubled the word, right, just to give extra emphasis. And so, you know, uh, in, in the Greek, the, the word for fear is phobos. And so they say that, he is, that the shepherds are phobiophobos. Okay, now they're not just phobos, they're, they're phobiophobos, which means in, in the literal Greek, it actually says they, were, they feared with a great fear. He wants you to understand just how terrified the shepherds are. Why? Why were they so afraid? It's important that we understand this. We need to understand the dark side of the Christmas message if we want to appreciate the light. Just like in all of those stories that I mentioned to you earlier, you can't understand, you can't appreciate the glory that that Cinderella was chosen by the prince unless you first understand that Cinderella wasn't much more than a slave. We can't appreciate beauty, Belle. We can't appreciate beauty's selfless love until we first understand just how ugly and mean the beast was. You've got to understand. That's why, this, that's why the, the best movies will spend so much time breaking down, helping you to understand the dilemma. One of the main themes of the Bible is that men and women prefer darkness. They're terrified of the light and the glory of God, but Why? What's the dilemma? The light exposes us. When we are exposed by the light of Christ, our sin and rebellion is seen for what it truly is. That's why, um, that's why when Isaiah, um, when he has a vision and he's standing in, in, the, in the very presence of God in the temple, you know, and he sees the glory of God, remember what he says? He says, woe is me. He starts calling down curses upon himself. Woe is me, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. He starts calling down curses upon himself. That's why when Peter sees Jesus in all of his glory, when, he, when Peter sees Jesus uh, in the boat, and he sees him for who he is, Peter says, depart from me, leave from me, for I'm a sinner. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God. They had fellowship with God. They, they loved to be with God. They loved to walk with Him. They looked forward to it as something they enjoyed. They basked in His glory. But then sin entered into the world, and everything changed. And so then when God came walking through the garden, what did they do? They hid. They went and hid. And then when God says, why are you hiding? Adam says, because I'm afraid. Fear. Now, back to the shepherds. Many of you have heard in the Christmas messages past that, that shepherds, didn't have a stellar reputation, right? They didn't have the greatest reputation. Being a shepherd was the, the lowest, one of the lowest of professions, okay? You didn't try to become a shepherd. You ended up as a shepherd. But not only was it the bottom of the, the social and the professional ladder, but they had a, a reputation for immorality. 
Lots of people think that maybe this is because because they had so much demand, you know, they had to be with the shepherds or the sheep all the time that they weren't able to go and, you know, go to the temple and perform the, the rituals and be part of the feast and all the rest of it. And so they had this reputation for basically just being immoral, irreligious. They actually had a reputation for being thieves. So here's what we've got. If, if their reputation is at all accurate, what we have is in the middle of the night, we've got a bunch of wicked, immoral thieves sitting up on a hill with their sheep. And then a strong warrior angel shows up in front of them, surrounded by the very glory of God. What do you think is going through their minds in that moment? If their reputation is accurate, if they're as immoral as, as, as they were made out to be, and then an angel comes with the glory of God surrounding it, they're thinking, judgment day. Everything I've done is now caught up to me. I'm going to get what's coming to me. But then the angel opens his mouth, and this is what he says. Fear not. Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. The very last thing that these shepherds would have expected to come out of the angel's mouth is, Hey, good news, guys. I, I'm coming with good news. They, they expected a message of judgment. They received a message of peace. The angels say, Don't be, fear not. Don't be afraid anymore. You have no need to fear anymore. Peace is coming. Peace on earth. And we throw that phrase around a lot, especially at this time of year. Peace on earth. No more fear. Why peace on earth? But what does that mean? When we typically talk about or we pray for peace on earth, what we're typically talking about is, is the ending of wars, the ending of bloodshed. No more of these you know, political states battling against one another. Is that what the angels were talking about? I don't think so. Because actually, if this is what the angels meant that night when they're talking about peace on earth, if Jesus was actually was born to get rid of war and disaster and bloodshed and oppression, then the skeptics would probably have a right to say, you know, Jesus, you and your followers have been around for 2,000 years. Your message is about 2,000 years old. Man, you really got to pick up the pace a little bit. Because in fact, if anything, it's getting worse. Case in point. <laughs> Ambulance. I mean, lots of folks would say it's getting worse. There, there's, there's been more violence and, and bloodshed and wars and genocide in the last century than there were in the 19, 19 previous combined. There's actually a pl place in Luke chapter 21, the same gospel, same writer, who, who, who quotes Jesus as saying this. The disciples asked Jesus, Jesus, what will, what will the signs of the end of the age be? And he says this, when you hear of wars and revolutions, see to it that you're not surprised. These things must happen. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. Jesus is basically telling us we should not expect warfare to cease. If anything, up until the end, it's going to get worse. So when he talks about peace on earth, I don't think he's talking necessarily about international peace, at least not first and foremost. And I also don't think he's talking about individual peace. Some folks think, well, okay, if I become a Christian, my life will get a whole lot easier. All my relationships will work out. Everybody will start to like me, right? I'll start getting along with everybody. My life will get really smooth. Any longtime Christians, how's that working out? Not great, right? There's actually another place in, in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus says, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? No. 
I came to bring division. From now on, they will be divided, father against son, mother against daughter. I have come to bring fire on the earth. What does he mean by that? I think Jesus is saying, if I come into your life, you'll actually have less peace in your life. People who used to like you and get along with you will no longer like you and get along with you. People who, have, who, will, you know, who in the past have accepted you as one of their own will now reject you. He says, because, because I was hated, you will be hated because you're affiliated with me. I don't know why, I don't know why we don't preach on this passage every Christmas. He's saying your life's not going to get easier. It's going to get more difficult. When you accept me into your life, there's going to be more conflict, more division. So what is it then? What, what, what is this peace on earth that should drive out that fear? By the way, doesn't God care if we have peace? Doesn't God care if we have, you know, international conflict? Doesn't God care if we have individual? And, and, the, and the answer, of course, is yes. Blessed are the peacemakers. That's what G- Jesus said that. Blessed are the peacemakers. The problem is, is that we get the starting line wrong. Thomas Merton said this. He said, We are not at peace with one another because we are not at peace with ourselves. And we are not at peace with ourselves because we are not at peace with God. That's peace on earth. The peace that the angels sang about that night was not peace between nations, nor was it peace between individuals, but it was peace between God and sinners. And we affirm this actually every single Christmas as we sing these songs. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. That's peace on earth. And here's why this is so important. According to the scriptures, we are not just afraid, as the shepherds, we're not just afraid, we're not just afraid of the glory of God because we have been a little, you know, uh, we haven't quite hit the mark, you know, because we failed God a little bit. We are afraid of the glory of God. Please hear me on this. This is very important. We are afraid of the glory of God because, not because we have failed him, but because we are fighting against him. Because we are fighting against him. We have been at war with God and he comes declaring peace. Peace. Reconciliation. Let me, let me show this to you in, in the scriptures. Colossians chapter 1. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds, but now he has reconciled you by Christ. Romans chapter 5. Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. For when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Romans 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. We're not just failing God. We're actually fighting God. This is why the shepherds were so terrified that night. Because they are standing in the midst of the glory of the one whom they have raged against and stolen from and fought against and rebelled against. And they're standing there in that night with the glory of God shining around them. And they're standing weak and exposed and guilty. And God in his power could rightfully consume them in a moment in his holiness. That's the truth. And you might be here thinking, I'm not, I'm not fighting God. Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not a perfect guy, but I'm not fighting against, I'm not raging against God. I would just argue and say, yes, you are. And you look at, you look at history. You look at, look at Adam and Eve. Be honest and look at your life. We've been fighting God for his throne. We've been fighting God for his jobs. I'll, I'll, I'll even give you a, a few examples of this. Think for a moment about why you worry. Many of us struggle with worry. Think for a moment about why you worry so much. Because you're afraid that God's not going to get it right. And so you're fighting him for his job as king. 
You're fighting him for that steering wheel. You're fighting him for the driver's seat of your life because you think that you know better than God about how your life should go. When we worry, we're not failing God, we're fighting God. Or think about resentment. Some of you are having a really hard time forgiving someone. Some bitterness in your heart. You're holding a grudge. You know what you're doing? You're fighting God for his role as judge. You're fighting God for his job as judge. You think that you know best about what that person deserves, and you're going to be bitter at God and bitter against that person and bitter at other people until that person gets what you know they deserve because you know best. Okay? We're trying to take God's job as judge. We're fighting against him. Or, or, or take all of our efforts at self-righteousness. Again, we think, I'm not... I'm not I'm not fighting God for, for anything. I'm just, I'm just failing. If I just work a little bit harder. But you see what you're doing? You're fighting God for his job as Savior. He has rightfully claim, come and, and, and claimed that role for himself. He said, I am the Savior. And you say, no, 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 no. I'll be my Savior. I'm going to take that from you. I'm going to fight you. I'm going to fight you for it. So why am I spending so much time harping on this? We're all wondering. Because unless we recognize our need for the gift, we'll never appreciate or receive Christmas for what it actually is. Because far too often, what we typically think is, I don't, I don't need reconciliation, you know, like that. I don't need that. I basically just need some more information. It's just I don't know enough, and as soon as I get a little bit more doctrine, as soon as I get a little bit more knowledge, then I'll be good. Or, or maybe it's, uh, you know, motivation. You know, if I could just try a little bit harder, then I know that God would accept me. Like, my, my main need is, is, you know, maybe some greater levels of accountability, some greater levels of motivation, and then I'll be good. No, no, no. Your main problem is that you're a rebel against God and that you need reconciliation. That can only come from him. If, if, if we, unless we recognize our need for the gift, we'll never appreciate or recognize Christmas for what it is. Let's say, you know, for example, that I open an envelope this Christmas morning. My wife would never do this, by the way, but in, 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 in that envelope is a six-month membership to Weight Watchers, Right? <laughs> If I didn't know that I could stand to lose about 20 pounds, I would have, first, I have no appreciation for the gift. I'd, I'd hand it back and I'd say, no thanks, but no thanks. Not only that, though, if I didn't think that I needed the gift, I would actually hand it back and say, not only do I want this gift, but, I'm, but I, not only do I not want this gift, but I'm offended that you even think I do. And that's what happens to so many of us. Unless you understand your need for the gift, you won't, you won't receive it, you won't appreciate it. Unless you and I can see the nature of our hearts that we are rebels guilty of treason, we can never see or receive the gift of Christmas for what it is. So the first gracious act of that night, that first Christmas night, was to scare the shepherds. He exposed them for what they were. And this is what we sing about in Amazing Grace. John, John Newton's Amazing Grace at him. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." And grace, my fears, relieved. First thing grace does, it makes us scared. Second thing grace does is say, fear not. That's the second thing grace does. Fear not. Behold. Behold what? Behold, I bring you good news. That word is literally gospel. Fear not. Behold the gospel. The prince has come. The son has come back to do battle against the evil one and take back the throne that rightly belongs to him. When, when all hope seemed lost, Gandalf came through just like he said he would, right? He said, uh, he said, look for me at dawn on the third day. 
Remember when he said that? Look for me at dawn on the third day. When all hope seemed lost in the battle, he comes in and he leads the army into victory. King Arthur has returned, and he's thrown out the tyrant, Prince John. He's setting things right. Peter Pan has showed up at our window, and he's ready. He's beckoning us to fly off with him into a land where we'll never grow old. Fear not. Behold the gospel. The beauty of all beauties has come to love and transform us beasts. How do we respond? How did the shepherds respond that night? First thing they do, we, we read, is that they left everything and they ran to Jesus. The shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They dropped everything. They left their sheep, and they ran to Jesus. Have you done that? You have. Or are you still saying, nah, I'm just not going to chance it. I'm just not going to chance. I'm not going to leave everything behind because if I leave and go to Jesus, something might happen to my sheep. Something might happen to my livelihood. If I give my life to Jesus, if I go and I worship Jesus, it might affect my reputation. It might affect my plans. It might affect my relationships. It might affect my dreams and my goals and my finances. And you'd be right. It will. God's love is free. We say it all the time here. You cannot pay for it. It's a gift, but it will cost you everything. Count the cost. So you're right. It will cost you. But friends, the only way to find this peace on earth is through Jesus Christ. No other pseudo-savior that you could be hoping in will offer to you what Jesus Christ has offered. No other pseudo-savior can do for you what Jesus has done for you. Jesus came and he lived the perfect life that you and I were meant to live but could not live. He followed God's law. He was sinless. He was holy. And he imputes that to us. He, he transfers that to our account. And then he, then he takes our sin and our guilt and our shame and he takes it upon himself. And he went to the cross and he paid the penalty for those sins. He took the justice that our crimes demand. And now we can stand pure and spotless before God, not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. It was his act of true love that turned back the eternal winter. Amen? We have made ourselves the beasts that we are, but the beauty has come to remove that once and for all. The beauty has come to kiss us. hope that you'll say yes to the gift that he's offering today, you today if you have not. The second thing we see the shepherds do is they, they share the good news. They shared this good news. Luke chapter 2, verse 17. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. Christian friends, you and I are these shepherds. Shepherds, We are sinners and we are thieves, saved by grace. And it is now our privilege of being heralds of this good news of joy for all people. And there is no better time to do this than Christmas. Would you be willing to stop for a moment this morning and think of just one person, even right now? Just, just ask the Lord to, to, to put, just one person, one person who, you know, it's a family member, a neighbor, a coworker, one person that has yet to say yes to Jesus. Would you at least do this? Would you commit to praying for that one person this week, every day this week? Set, pull your phones out right now if you want. Set, set an alarm on your phone every day this week. 
and, and pray for them. Pray that God would, would grab a hold of their mind and their heart, that he would show mercy to them and he would claim them as his own. And, and would you be willing to even pray and, and tell God, you know, God, I, I am, I'm even willing to play a role in that if you like. I'm even willing to be an instrument if you would like in this person coming to know you in a saving relationship. And I know, I know what some of you are thinking, like, I'll pray for the person. I'm not going to talk to him. Okay, I'll pray for him. And, and here's why. Because here's what you're thinking, and I've heard this so many times. I, I don't know enough. And so what if they ask me a question that I don't have the answer to? I don't want to give Christianity a bad name. As if you're doing Christianity a favor by keeping your mouth shut. Do you think that the shepherds knew all of the theological answers that night when they started going around telling everybody? Do you think they, they had figured out God's plan, all the ins and outs of God's plan? They just saw God lying in a feeding trough. Do you think they had some questions maybe? I think they did. But they went out and told what they had seen and heard. There's a, there's a place for apologetics. Apologetics is the study, the defense of the Christian faith. Wrestling through some of those, those, those important questions about the historicity of the scriptures and science and all of the rest. There's a place for all that. But apologetics removes hurdles. It doesn't save souls. Okay? God saves souls. And if basically, if you're relying on your intellect to save a soul anyway, you're basically saying, I'm smart enough to save this person. And you're not. You're a lousy savior. Okay? God saves souls. Your job, my job, is to share the good news of what God has done in Jesus. To, to, to share the good news of what God has done in my life and then let the Holy Spirit do what he chooses to do. And honestly, here's, here's, here's the great news. Like we've already said, the gospel message has already been written on people's hearts. They already are yearning for it. They're already longing for it. We've already talked about it. You just simply need to point out to them that the prince that they have been waiting for, that knight in shining armor that they have been dreaming about, his name is Jesus. So we share the good news. The last thing we see the shepherds do, and we're going to close here, is the shepherds worship. Verse 20, the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen. When we see the Christmas message for what it is, the only natural response, the only, nat the only reasonable response is worship. Is your life defined by this? I'm asking, is my life defined by this? This is what I want to be said of me. After Philip met Jesus, after Philip beheld the gospel, the good news of great joy for all people, after Philip met Jesus, he returned glorifying and praising God for all that he had heard and seen. May that be said of me. May that be said of you. But what I realized something this week is that the seasons of my life when I'm not worshiping God, when I'm not glorifying and praising God, are typically the seasons when I've lost sight of Christmas, when I've lost sight of the gospel message. Because what was it that compelled the shepherds to worship that night? They beheld. They beheld the gospel. When you see and embrace what God has done for us through Jesus, it moves you, it compels you to sing and to shout and to praise and to repent and to confess and to love and to glorify God. You want an example of worshipers? Look at the angels in this story. I've been, I've been mulling over Luke 2 all week, um, trying to consider from all these different angels. One thing I've never really thought about is well, the angels. What was going through the mind of the angels that night? There's a verse, in, I think it's in 1 Peter. Peter makes this little offhand comment um, where he says, the gospel, comma, in which angels long to look. It's kind of a weird statement. The gospel in which angels long to look. And I used to take that verse as um, you know, the, the angels just quite, can't quite understand the gospel because they've never sinned. Therefore, they've never you know, experienced grace. Therefore, they've really longed to. 
you know, long to experience the gospel. I actually don't think, upon more study, I actually don't think that that's what that verse is saying. I think it's saying the gospel in which angels long to look. In other words, they never get tired. They yearn to just go deeper and deeper and deeper into gospel truth. You know, it's, it's, it's God's grace. It's God's love. It's God's justice. God's sacrifice. They never tire of it. They continue looking at the gospel. It's so beautiful. It's so glorious. The angels just long. They continue to look into it. Think about it from their perspective that night. The angels for thousands and thousands, who knows how long in the past, for thousands and thousands of years have been worshiping God in all of his glory at heaven's throne. And then this night, Christmas night, 2,000 years ago, they see the God to whom they have been crying out, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, for thousands of years has just taken on flesh and was born as a baby and is laying in a feeding trough and is weak and is dependent and is vulnerable and is needy and is literally nursing from the breast of a 15-year-old peasant girl. The God to whom, to whom they've been crying, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty is nursing from a little girl. How do you not fall on your knees and worship a God when you see that? I always used to think, you know, when the, when the sky lights up and the multitude of angels are all there, I used to think that that was kind of like a Christmas pageant, a Christmas play, like that God had orchestrated, like, first, okay, angel, you go out first, you're going to give the message, and then the stage director gives the cue, and then the whole choir lights up, and then that's what they're going to do. I'm not fully convinced that that's how it went down. To be honest with you, in my mind, what would make more sense is that when this angel declared what God is up to, and when the angels see that this holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty has taken on, he's become a baby, taken on flesh, and is laying in a feeding trough. And is dependent. He has made himself vulnerable, killable for rebels like us. What else is there to say? But the, the, I think the angels just, just lit up the sky. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to men. Here, here's my prayer this week. That God would so move us with the truth and the beauty and the glory of Christmas, of Jesus Christ, of God, of Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh, that we too, just as those angels did the night, would explode in worship. And so we're going to do just that. I'm going to call Roxy and the team back up, and we're going to respond to the Christmas story together in worship. Why don't you guys come on up?